the bigger the company you join, the more email there will be. It can quickly become a dominating force in your life. What we make people feel is just as important as what we make. And what we actually make is joy in software form. Having an amazing product is everything. And so we've put all of our time into figuring out how to build an amazing product. I believe that is what you do to build a long-term sustainable business. You know, revenue is a side effect of success. What success actually is, is a large number of people using your product. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready podcast, we sit down with Raul Vora, founder and CEO of Superhuman. Superhuman recently announced a $33 million Series B from Andreessen Horowitz, which was their first fundraising announcement, despite having raised over $17 million previously. I have Raul give us some details about his fundraising history and the strategy, which is quite unique. Raul and I spend a lot of time discussing his experience of building software to solve problems that individuals encounter in their day-to-day work. However, Raul's approach to bringing these solutions to market is very different than most enterprise software companies. As such, Superhuman is defining a new category that can be described as prosumer in the enterprise. We talk about what that entails, as well as how it impacts other parts of the business, including how they survey, select, and onboard users through a one-on-one introductory call so that all users can become power users. This is definitely a bit of a unique enterprise-ready podcast, but hopefully you'll enjoy Raul's perspective on a different way to think about enterprise go-to-market approaches. Hope you enjoy the show. All right, Raul, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Cool, let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. How'd you get here? Before Superhuman, I, I started Reportive. We were the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. And then uh, back I, in the day, I, I was a Reportive that. user. So I, cool. I remember. I remember it. Uh, I wish I, I still had the database. I could tell you a user number. Um, do you remember when you started using it? No. <laughs> yeah, it was probably 2010, 2011. So in 2012, we ended up selling that to LinkedIn, where for a period of time, I ran all of our email integrations. Oh, cool. Uh, and now I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Superhuman, where we make the fastest email experience of all time. Amazing. It sounds like you've been in email for a long time then. Sure. Although I would more broadly characterize it as productivity. Okay. So you kind of think about email from the perspective of productivity, not just from like sending and receiving email. In what way? In the way that our whole raison d'etre, our goal is to literally make you brilliant at what you do. And email just happens to be a part of that. On average, it's about three hours per day for a professional. Uh, and so our goal is to help you do that time faster. Uh, but then one day going beyond email as well. For like a enterprise software founder, right? Quote unquote. I say that with, with air quotes. You know, you've really been focused on sort of this productivity and work process. But do you consider yourself an enterprise software founder? I'm probably the least qualified enterprise software founder you'll ever interview. Right, but all you think about is being more productive at work, right? right? So maybe from that sense, yes. 
Yeah, so it's it's an interesting perspective because you know you're not really focused on a lot of the enterprise ready features, right? Like we were, we were talking earlier, when you look at Superhuman, there's no admin experience. Like I, I'm a Superhuman user; I've been one for a long time. I pay for like six you know accounts that replicated, and I, there's no way for me to like go in and like do anything about those accounts. It's a very different perspective from how we normally at Enterprise Ready talk about how to build enterprise software. Like, how do you think about your approach to go to market and your approach to getting people to use your product in an enterprise software sense? Like, what makes this work? Yeah, I think you have to mirror the product to how people are going to buy it. And first of all, no one was really buying email before we came along, and so we had to figure out what it was that people would buy. And we quickly realized that it was speed, it was joy, it was the flow and the sensation of getting through your inbox really, really fast. And once you know that that's what people are buying, how are they going to buy it? Well, it turns out that having an admin dashboard doesn't really make a difference to the reason that people buy. Having an amazing product, on the other hand, is, is everything. And so we've put all of our time into figuring out how to build an amazing product. And what do you focus on to make sure that the email experience is better. What are the key tenets of a amazing product for email? So we have a saying inside of Superhuman, which is what we make people feel is just as important as what we make. And what we actually make is joy in software form. And so the heritage of product management inside of Superhuman is very unlike the normal discipline of that anywhere else. You know, most companies you'd be worried about what users want or what they need or what they say they need. In Superhuman, we don't really worry about that. Instead, we obsess over how users feel. And so this is very much like game design. I used to be a game designer back in the day, way before Reportive. And if you think about it, a video game doesn't have to exist. There's no requirement for a video game to be. The thing you're trying to achieve is a state of mind in the user. And it's the same for Superhuman. We're trying to figure out how to get users to a uh, in, into a joyful state and into a state of flow. That's really interesting. So the I, as I'm I'm just processing this right. So it's think about what would put a user into a state of flow with getting email done. Is that state of flow different for my personal email than it is for my work email? I don't think so. I think flow is a, it's a well understood phenomenon. We. We all know when we're in flow, we know when we're not. But I don't think you would pay for flow in your personal email. Rightly or wrongly, I don't think we value that time. But we do value the time that we spend on our work email. But people use Superhuman for both work email and personal email, right? Yes. Although we don't let you use it if it's only personal email. And actually, initially it was work email only, but we realized that if you were in Superhuman for your work email and Gmail for your personal email, then there was this cognitive dissonance as you were going back and forth. It was difficult to fully adopt. So we changed our strategy to be work first, personal secondary. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I use it for both, and I find myself transitioning between both emails pretty quickly with the keyboard shortcuts. Great. Yeah, and so that, that I mean, it works perfectly for me. Okay, so just for like to help kind of provide a bit more context around productivity what else do you think that lies in like the productivity space? How else are people spending time to get productive? or use, What tools are they using? So there's this new generation of productivity tools that we were just talking about earlier. Uh, we're seeing 
a ton of take up for companies like Notion and like Airtable and like Zapier. Uh, we run Superhuman on a combination of all of the above. And I mean, do you think about like to do lists as like part of that? Is that? I think so. I think to do lists though are a, they're a very very difficult area to enter because kind of like email, everyone does them their own way. And then there's this interesting tension between productivity and collaboration. So Airtable and Notion are primarily collaboration tools first, and then productivity tools second. Whereas to-do lists like email are productivity tools first and collaboration tools second. Interesting. So what are people writing emails? Is it is it because I use a lot of Google Docs as well, right? So is it are people writing in emails just like the some of the same stuff I'm doing in Google Docs, like creating sort of like foundational documents and strategy docs, or are they is email primarily just like the back and forth and sort of figuring the things out about those assets? Well, this is the magic of email because it's such a powerful, flexible tool. You actually get both of those things. So, roughly fifty percent of the emails that we send and receive are one-liners. It's like like the email I sent you earlier. Hey, I'm running twenty minutes late. Sure. That was one line. Most of our scheduling emails are one line going back and forth. But also, email lends itself to those long-form thoughts, documents, letters, uh, and that's where you, you get this extreme flexibility and power. Uh, and compared to something like Slack or, or any other chat platform, that's a huge deal because you can take the time to to frame your thinking, to go deep as you need, and then the recipients can triage, file, and sort as appropriate. They can say, I'm going to deal with this one now, this one tomorrow, I'm going to put this one away in long-term reference, and I'm going to delete this one. How do you balance sort of that idea of deep thought that's happening and sort of creation that's happening inside of an email client Versus, I know I know a lot of the focus for Superhuman, especially early on, was on was on speed, right? And like, how fast is this client? So, I, interestingly, I remember like back when you were, you know, still pretty early in the throes of of building this, you were like everyone would just describe it. It's so fast, yeah, right. That was the key thing. It's just so fast. Superhuman. Why do you use it so fast? Like, talk about how, how do those two things play together, and then also like your obsession about speed. I'm always really interested in that. So, it comes back to the idea of flow. So flow is the sensation of being fully immersed and even enjoying the activity that you're doing. How do we get you into flow? Well, one of the ways is speed. And that's pretty simple, I think, to understand. Imagine if the product wasn't fast. I mean, basically imagine any product, imagine Gmail, and you click on an email or you do a search and it takes seconds. It only takes a split second for your mind to start to wander, and you start thinking about something, worrying about something else, and then that distraction can turn into hacker news or a new tab or, or something else entirely. And the next thing you know, you're no longer doing the thing that you thought you were doing, uh, and that's bad. That is poor productivity. Now, some of us have more willpower than than the rest of us, and are able just to power through that. I, I know I'm I'm not one of those people, so you know I I suffer from distraction. The way to get around that, of course, is speed. If you don't have the possibility of distraction, then you won't be, and you'll, you'll be in flow. So one of the things that Superhuman does, this, this little trick actually helps people go 15% faster, is it auto-advances you when you triage an email. So let's say you're looking at an email, you hit E to archive, immediately you're looking at the next email. In fact, before you've had the chance to think about what is it I'm going to do next, you're looking at the next email. Whereas in Gmail and every other email client, the default is you're back at the inbox. And that inbox is, is scary, it's distracting, 
Uh, or it's exciting. It has new things at the top and you know you get pulled out of flow again. So that idea that you auto-advance through your email helps people go about 15% faster. So it's speed of how you actually individually process the emails that are in front of you. But there's also, you focus on speed of the actual client itself, right? And, yes. and measuring you know, the response times in milliseconds. That's right. Yeah, when Paul Buchheit sat down to build Gmail, he had this rule, which was that everything would take place in 100 milliseconds or less. And that's because that's the threshold at which things feel instantaneous. Mm. Uh, you, you don't have the opportunity to be distracted or even to, to lose focus during that time. And nowadays, Gmail isn't like that. As, as I said, things take many seconds, uh, searches even longer. Uh, so, so we just decided to bring that rule back and maniacally focused on it from the earliest days. The, the very first thing we did was build a performance framework where we could measure how long every single thing that the user interface does actually takes. Oh, wow, so you're instrumented down to the like every action that someone's doing, you're measuring and then sending that data off to Datadog or some other source, or is it just an internal tool that you built? Yeah, we, we don't share the data, of course, with okay. a third party. It's uh, collected, centrally, and analyzed. And that's just metadata about like using the application you're saying too, right? It's just like you know, every, every click or something is you're recording the speed which that took. Yeah, if, if you hit a key, we'll measure how long it takes for that to actually take effect. Oh, wow. And so, and you've used that to make improvements in the product to make sure that there's no area that takes longer than 100 milliseconds? Absolutely, yeah. And what we found, and I think as engineers, we intuitively know this to be true, but we have the data to show it, uh, is that products get slower over time. The more features you add, the more code there is. Slowly but surely, that code takes time to run and the thing gets slower. And so the only way to mitigate that is to instrument for performance ahead of time to decide a threshold. And the right way to pick these metrics is a tuple, a pair of percentage and speed. So for example, we might say that we want 99% of mm. message shows to appear in 100 milliseconds or less. Sure. And we might say we want 99.9% of key presses to take effect in 10 milliseconds or less. Because uh, you do not want lag when you're typing, of course. In the uh, sort of infrastructure software world, we refer to these as SLOs, right? Service level objectives. Oh, gotcha. So this, okay. these are, and then the, these are the things that you're measuring. And you're saying, hey, we need to make sure that we're, these activities happen within this threshold. And then service level agreements, SLAs, are based on top of those. So then whatever you make the agreement with your customer is actually an SLA. So yeah, so that, that's how we talk about it in the infrastructure software world. It sounds like you've, you've kind of come to the same conclusions around you have to have these thresholds and percentages that you want to happen within that time frame. That's fascinating. Yes, yeah. yes. We have about 25 SLOs, I guess, about 15 of which are really, really cool. Yeah. And so you're measuring those constantly, and if some, you, have, you have alerting that's set up, and if something goes out, or before you probably, you probably do it because it's a, you deliver a client, and so you're probably just testing it before you ever release the client, so you'll never release something that it's going to take that long, right? Actually, we do do the release, okay. uh, and you know maybe we should rethink how we do this. But the way it works today is we make a thing because we believe the thing should be made, and then we release that. And generally speaking, people like it, but that typically does make the software slower. Mm. And it's only really after it's in the hands of thousands of customers that we have the data to know 
what impact it's having at scale. And then we can go back in and make everything fast again. And so we kind of go through this cycle repeatedly. Oh, because you might just kick that feature out if no one's using it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like this way you're not over-optimizing things that aren't going to be used. Right. That yep. makes total sense. You know, One of the things that I, that I love about Superhuman, and I think that a lot of people are starting to talk about, is, is the onboarding process that you've been using, right? And so obviously... You have some very different perspectives on how people should go to market, you know, or, or different ways they could go to market, right? And one of your go-to-market techniques has been this very intensive onboarding process. And I've heard other startups talk about like you know, emulating that. And so, if someone wants to emulate that, like, what is so unique about your onboarding process? Can you tell us just like how it works end to end, like as much as detail as you possibly can? I'm really interested in the the dynamics of it. Sure. So, for those who don't know, we do in-person onboardings, uh, typically over a Zoom video call. They're about half an hour in length each. And the content of the onboarding is you get to meet one of our wonderful onboarding specialists. We, we have an increasingly large team of folks who do that role now. And they're not only experts in email, they're also these gurus in productivity. Mm. So you were the first onboarding specialist too, right? I, I was, but yeah. sort of by accident. I, sure. I did the, the first few hundred myself, and we really stumbled onto this strategy. The reason that we were doing them in the, or I was doing them in the beginning, uh, was any number of things. I, I was doing pricing analyses. I was interviewing users. Uh, I wanted to watch people in the first half an hour of using the product to to find all the bugs that I didn't know existed, so we could fix them. And as it turned out, it also was an incredible way to onboard users. And we just had this decision internally where I was like, this is going to be it. This is the way that we scale. As crazy as it is, and literally everybody tried to talk me down from scaling this, but I was like, no, <laughs> this is this is going to be our weird thing that we do. We did decide, nevertheless, to scale it. So the way it works today is you get invited to Superhuman. It's still invite only. You fill out a survey. The survey has, uh, I think, 15 to 20 questions where you, know, you, you qualify, basically, and say, here is how I do my email. If the qualification looks good, if we believe that you would be successful with the product, we then invite you to, to sign up for an onboarding. We then authorize your credit card. Uh, we don't actually take any money at that point, but we do authorize the credit card. And you know, for anyone considering implementing this, I would highly recommend doing that. that that's mm. a good way to not let in folks who aren't actually serious about fixing a problem that they may have. And then you schedule a time, and we use Calendly for that. And then on the Zoom video call, you'll get to meet one of the onboarding specialists, and they're all lovely people, sort of uh, imagine the, the effusivity of a, uh, an Apple Store greeter, and after a, a little bit of pleasantry, they'll ask to see how you do your email. They'll actually ask you to do some email. Mm. They'll have a look around the structure of your inbox, and understand what your workflow is. And once they've got a good grasp of your workflow, they'll then get you into Superhuman, they'll configure anything that needs to be configured, and then they'll show you how to do your email twice as fast as you were doing it before. And they'll even show you how to get to Inbox Zero if you weren't previously doing that before as well. So the interesting part is you say they watch like you do email currently. Mm -hmm. Are they looking for, or is it like a set of like, 20 different patterns that people do email there are three primary patterns are you kind of how are they bucketing people in to then create the experience they should have in, in the superhuman product yeah the, there's a certain number of patterns of course that, that there are folks who archive emails uh, like you do there are folks who delete emails 
some folks just let their inbox grow and become hundreds of thousands of emails long. Uh, some care about the unread number, some care about the total number. Then you get really complicated setups where some folks are using Gmail's multiple inbox feature. Mm. And in all of those cases, we can do it and do it better and faster. Uh, but in order to know what to recommend to you and to truly personalize it, we, we do have to understand how you're doing it today. And sometimes we'll actually recommend changing workload. For example, if you're not archiving email, if you're micromanaging an unread number, which which is crazy if you're like sort of hitting a shortcut or even worse, clicking a button to continuously mark things as unread, then we'll actually talk through the benefits of doing it a different way of archiving your email instead. Okay, so part of it is even helping people understand how to be more productive in email, which is realistically probably something no one's ever tried to show them. Yes. Yeah. Which is strange if you consider that we spend hours a day on this thing and no one has ever taught us how to do it properly. It's funny. It's a great point. When people join your company and they have they come from different places and maybe having used email personally a lot or you know been now you know if they're younger they're they're used to messaging apps to come in and then no one trains people how to use email right no one trains how to be the most productive on email when you first join a company yeah and so I, and it's absurd and in fact the bigger the company you join the more email there will be yeah uh, it can quickly become a dominating force in your life that's really funny and so then you know I I read GTD right getting things done that was sort of my like that's the pattern that I emulated, and I'm sure that's a fairly common pattern that you've seen over time, right? Like using your inbox as your to-do list, basically trying to accomplish anything that can be done in like less than two minutes. You sort of do right away, using like a like a read later kind of concept to like move things around a little bit. There's just there's a handful of patterns that I think like you know getting things done, GTD that that methodology prescribes. Yeah, and we definitely do recommend. Most of those things, yeah. You know, if you obviously if you can do a thing very quickly, you should just do the thing. Things like read it later or snooze or whatever you want to call that feature. Those are controversial features, I think. Mm -hmm. Ideas. There is an argument to be made that you should only ever really look at an email once mm -hmm. or look at a thing once. And if you continuously snooze it to later, then you're doing multiple reads, and over time, that can become very inefficient. However some people are able to use that feature to become way more productive. And so we take a fairly agnostic point of view on that. It's there if you want to use it, and it can be incredibly useful if used properly. So you're training people how to use email, which is something that we should all probably do at our companies anyway, so like that's valuable just in itself, right? Is just showing people how to become more productive in the thing you're having them do for so much of their day. Mm -hmm. And you're showing them how to use Superhuman. Superhuman introduces a bunch of Different strategies for becoming a power user, and keyboard shortcuts is the one that jumps to mind at first. I'm sure there's other things you guys think about, but yes. And do you train people on using keyboard shortcuts, or is that we do? Yes, that's another huge part of the onboardings. Uh, so, for those listeners who don't know, the product is very aggressively keyboard shortcut driven. In fact, it's deliberately annoying to use with the mouse. There are very few buttons. Um, they're not particularly big. They're hard you to probably see. shouldn't be clicking them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, it's a complete joy to use with the keyboard. Sure. Uh, and that's because we believe in this keyboard first world for desktop software. You know, look at any trader on Wall Street or, or any analyst. They're not clicking around in Excel, they're whizzing around it using the keyboard and they're working twice as fast as 
as, as you and I might if we were using the mouse. And so our goal is to get everyone to, to that level of productivity. Now, you know, not everyone is a developer like you and I and, and has grown up with keyboard shortcuts. Sure. Uh, but what we found is that doesn't actually matter. Uh, if you have people who are sufficiently motivated to turn up for an onboarding session, it doesn't matter what their background is, they'll be able to learn keyboard shortcuts. Yeah, I didn't use them very often before Superhuman, and then it became, now I sort of expect them everywhere, right? right. Because yeah. they just, they do make you faster, and then it's funny when I hit like command enter and something doesn't send, I'm like, what, what, what's wrong with this thing? Right, yeah. right? And you, these become expectations, which is great because you're establishing new patterns that I think other people can hopefully use, and I mean, the advantage would be like for everyone to follow the same patterns, right, and to leverage sort of the same keyboard shortcuts to do similar actions, right? Send, you know, search these things you're doing over and over in different applications. If they can all follow a similar pattern, I think it's yeah, advantageous. I would agree. Yeah, cool. And so, the interesting part here is you have this team. And so, um, did you like develop a, a training that you're that you're providing for this team so you can onboard someone who's you know excited about productivity tools, but they're not a trained onboarding specialist, right? That's not a, a skill set that you can just put into, you know, Indeed.com and find thousands of people who know how to do onboarding for email. So you must have a, a pretty extensive training program that you put people through, is that right? We do, yes. Uh, and for folks thinking of implementing this, I would say that uh, you can go through four phases. I, I think we went through about four distinct phases. So phase number one was the founder should do it, right? The founder should do the first few hundred onboardings understand what should be in the onboarding, what should be not in an onboarding. When I was doing them, initially they were one and a half hours each. And then I got them down to an hour long, and now we, we do half an hour onboardings. And that's through the process of, of iteration and trial and error. You'll, you'll figure out what's important. And I think step two is have a member of your senior leadership team do the same. So not you, but but someone who understands the product, the strategy, the positioning, everything inside and out. Uh, in our team, that was Gaurav, who's our head of growth. So I started to slow down the number of onboardings that I was doing, and, and he started to speed up. So he, I, I think at peak, was doing about 25 a week. Uh, and that went on for a few more months. So now you have two people in the company who both really deeply understand this process. And I think at this point, you should start hiring for it. But instead of hiring specialists, I would hire generalists. Mm. Uh, so what we did at that point is we hired two onboarding generalists, although we didn't call them that at the time. I, I think the actual job title was full stack growth. Hmm. So to operate all the way across the funnel, everything from a little bit of marketing through to the onboarding, through to sort of customer support and outreach after the fact. Uh, and, and the reason you want generalists, by the way, is... Uh, to your point, there is no training in place. You just have two people in the company who happen to know how it works. And so you need sort of scrappy entrepreneurial types who can learn by osmosis and quickly and, and, and on their feet. And so then they became our first two onboarding specialists over time. Okay. And we, we really started to tighten up the process. We got it down from an hour to half an hour long. We figured out how to systematize uh, Zoom, Calendly, Stripe, Zapier, wired all these things together to make a really efficient onboarding system. When it became really clear that that this whole enterprise was working, that you know churn rates were low, retention was high, virality was through the roof, uh, we decided to sort of really step on the gas and, and hire a lot more of these folks. And that's when we created the onboarding specialist role. That's also when we 
invested in training. So now there's an eight-week-long training plan for any new onboarding specialist. There's a certification at the end of that called Becoming Superhuman. So you have to to prove uh, through a little mini exam that you know what you're doing and that you're ready to sort of do it for real. And there's a really fun sort of shadowing process along the way as well, where you get to sit in on onboardings as they happen. And then slowly you start to do them yourself. And then you'll be watched by another onboarding specialist and critiqued as you go. And I guess along the way, were you sort of just documenting the onboarding process you were doing? You had the hour and a half version. Did you kind of have like a Google Doc that you used and like kind of wrote down what you did? How long did it take you to start to build some of the collateral around this? Yeah, it wasn't me specifically. I'm I'm not a particularly uh, well-organized person and documentation is the least of my skills. Uh, so this was our head of growth, Garv. Okay, so once Garv started doing it, he started documenting it in order to create a exactly. process. Yeah, you know, we, we were talking about your, your dear friend William earlier. You need that kind of person, someone who's extremely organizational, very process-driven. Gaurav trained uh, as a strategy consultant, so you know, excellent execution. Uh, you need somebody like that to run this kind of an organization. Yeah, and then is he still running it? Is that he is. So, okay? Cool. So yeah. he's kind of built that up, and it's you know now you're hiring lots of folks in here to, because that will feels like that will be the key bottleneck is how many onboardings can you do in a week, right? Like because yes. you, know, you have a a human factor there where you're you're doing these now. Obviously, you can do three times as many, you know, now per person than you could two years ago when you first started doing it. But that will be an area where you'll need to really expand, I guess. Right? That's right. We're at about forty-five onboardings per person per week. Uh, some folks in some weeks will stretch to forty-seven or, or maybe even fifty. And we're always looking for ways to to get more throughput in any given week. Yeah, and then. The benefits, right, are I guess are primarily you mentioned, like just users engage and know how to use it. They are retained and they are more viral. They talk about it more. Is that right? Are there other areas where it's really helped, or what's the primary thing you've gained? I think the primary thing that you gain is the ability to turn every user into a power user of your software, and then there are some definite. Business advantages. Yes, churn is way lower. Yes, retention is way higher. Yes, virality is way higher. Ultimately, you end up leaving people with a really great positive connection to the company, to the brand. And I think this is this is definitely one of the ways where you can build a a world class brand because everyone who has ever used your product will have spoken to an expert about the product. Yeah, I mean, from the moment that I was onboarded, I still remember. Like, I still send feedback, right? There's, I'm sure you get a lot of feedback from folks when they run into little things or they have questions. Like, there's probably more engagement from users, like well after the fact, because they created this personal relationship up yeah. front. And speaking of feedback, that's actually one of the things that we train on. One of the last parts of an onboarding is is training you how to send us feedback if if you have an idea or if you run into a bug or something. Oh, interesting. So as a result, we get a ton of feedback because we're specifically asking for it and showing you how to do it. Uh, I think at this point we have north of 26,000 individual pieces of feedback that that we've triaged and logged. Oh, wow. So it's going to be harder for you to get all the, the features that I keep requesting. Uh, well, fortunately, it's not 26,000 different features. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. So that's super, you know, helpful. And I think for anyone out there that's building an enterprise software company, you know, spending time with your early customers in this way feels probably like I mean, it's, it's a lot of time, right? It's a lot of effort, 
But I think the interesting piece is this isn't just the person you're selling to. It's like you're actually enabling every user. Like when I brought my team on board, like they all had to go through this exact same onboarding. So it wasn't like I just got trained and then you know I invited them. They also had to get trained, right? Yeah. We've experimented with letting users onboard each other, but we found that being a customer is nowhere near the same level of expertise with the product and actually more importantly nowhere near the same level of expertise when it comes to training and coaching so product knowledge is one thing and i can imagine that you know a really highly motivated user could learn everything there is to know but there's a definite skill set in listening watching teaching and training that we select for when we're hiring for this role uh, and most customers don't have that because that's you know that's not their job yeah, I mean, because you, you basically you only use email one way, right? Your way, and right. so you basically been training everyone to use it, try to evangelize your own way. So. Right. Whereas what we try and do is understand your way and then help you do it better. Yeah, which I mean, which makes tons of sense. And so you know, I think this this onboarding piece has really been, you know, a unique offering that you've, a unique approach that you've taken. It kind of goes hand in hand, but it, it, I think it's it's related to this trend that I think superhuman is. It's the only example that I can think of, but this idea of prosumer in the enterprise, right? You know, the consumerization of IT has been this idea for a long time of just like bringing better experiences into enterprise software, right? Stop using like some Java UI, like start, you know, making software feel like software that we use uh, in our personal lives. And I think you see that all over the place where design has become an important part of, of software. Where usability of applications and onboarding has been important, but how would you define like the you know prosumerization of enterprise software? Yeah, so I think we're still in the wave of the consumerization of the enterprise. Oh, for right? sure. We, we we do expect our software to become increasingly polished and delightful, and we expect the same quality from our business software that we do from our uh, consumer software. And we're just at the start of this wave of the prosumerization of the enterprise. And I think it's perhaps easiest to understand through an example. Let's take the example of, of our, our new board member, David Ulovich, uh, who joined from Andreessen Horowitz. Mm-hmm. So he was previously the CEO of OpenDNS. And at that role, he would be in his inbox constantly, constantly triaging to ensure that he never blocks anybody on his team. Uh, he then sold that company to Cisco, and then he ran their security business. And he joked to me that when he was at Cisco, he became a human email router. And now he's a VC at Andreessen Horowitz, and, and being brilliant at email is more important to him than it's ever been before. And so it didn't matter whether he was a CEO, a corporate executive, or a general partner at a well-known VC firm. His needs as a prosumer have been ignored for years. And yet there are tens of millions of power users just like him all across the world. So I think this wave will be characterized by building high-end premium tooling for the busiest people. And an email is, I think, just the start of that. Yeah, it's almost like I'm going to relate it to like having an executive assistant, right? Which is you know, this way that those same people generally get more effective is by having someone assist them with a lot of the tasks that come up in day-to-day work, right? I mean is is like superhuman, you know, the sort of software version of a 
of an assistant in that, in that case? Like, does that make sense? I think I understand the analogy, but I wouldn't characterize Superhuman as sure. as, as a software <laughs> assistant. I think EAs are incredible. I'm, I'm fortunate to work with one, and uh, they can make your life tremendously easier and, and make you way more productive at work. I think I would broadly agree that the set of people who work with an EA should have prosumer software, but the set of people who should have prosumer software is wider than that. Yeah, agreed. Right. It's much, much wider than that, and and that's why it's an interesting business opportunity. I mean, an EA, you're going to pay, you know, sixty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, whereas like prosumer software, you know, you can in, maybe buy for Superhumans what four hundred bucks a year, basically three sixty, and then. You know, you could add on a handful of different software applications and come in, you know, at orders of magnitude less than what you'd spend for to hire someone. So exactly. it should it should open the market up by orders of magnitude as well. Yeah. It's an interesting pricing segment. So you know, consumer stuff is generally five to ten to fifteen at most dollars per month. Enterprise stuff seems to start at around fifty dollars per seat. Median seats, median Salesforce seat is 125, I think. Mm-hmm. And so you end up in between, which is why Superhuman as a prosumer piece of tooling is thirty dollars a month. Yeah, and how did you land on that that price? Uh, so we did a pricing analysis. So if you recall, in phase one of our onboarding development, when I was doing all the onboardings, uh, one of the things I was doing was was pricing surveys. Mm. And so when I sat down with each user, I would show them a demo of the product, and then I would say, "Hey, before we jump in, do you mind if I do a quick pricing survey with you?" And so we used the, the Van Westendorp pricing sensitivity questions. You, I think I showed you this I, I, at the time. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, so there are four questions involved. You, you ask, at what price would Superhuman be so expensive that you would not buy it? Mm. At what price would Superhuman be so cheap that you would be worried about its value and therefore you also would not buy it? At what price would it be expensive so you'd have to think really hard about it but you would still actually buy it? And then before at what price would you consider it a bargain for the money? Now, most companies in tech orient around the fourth question, the bargain for the money mm-hmm. question, because they typically are creating or entering new markets and they want to get all the users as fast as possible. But if you're building for premium users, if you're doing this prosumerization of the enterprise thing, then it makes much more sense to orient around the third question, which is at what price would you consider it to be expensive, and you'd think about it, but you'd still actually buy it. Yeah, Because that way, you're charging the premium that the product is also delivering. I mean, it likely will change over time. I think like people will start to realize over time how much value they're getting from Superhuman and probably be willing to pay more. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, so we regularly do this survey. When I did it in those first onboardings, the median answer was $30 per month to the third question. And when we more recently surveyed our users, we found some degree of price inelasticity, mm. meaning that folks would be willing to pay more than we're currently charging today, up to about $35 or $40. And I suspect that the longer that people use the product, you know, that the more willing they will be to, to pay for it. But of course, our focus isn't, isn't on that. That's not our business model. Our business model is to, to charge a premium but fair price for the value that we deliver. Do people end up putting this on personal credit cards and expensing it, or are they like getting a company card? Do they already have a card because they're a founder and they're a, you know they're executives? How are people paying for it right now? So sixty percent of our seats are either paid for directly by the company 
all paid for by the user and then expensed to the company. Okay. Only 60%? Uh, I think so, yes. So 40% of people are paying personally and not expensing it? Yes. Wow. That's a higher percentage than I would have expected. I think the the way that we look at it is those folks find so much value in the product that they're willing to buy it personally. You know, Maybe they have a, a manager that doesn't understand or they're in a, a less enlightened company where you can't easily expense things that you probably should be able to. And nevertheless, they are still able to, or still rather willing to to buy the software. But then in the other 60% of our users, they are in an enlightened company where, yes, obviously this thing is going to make you faster, you should be able to buy it. Kind of makes sense. Is there anyone that's just said, oh, we have have to roll this out to everybody in the company? Or is that, I know you're sort of against that, right? You don't want everybody using it unless they do email all the time. Yeah, we get that request fairly frequently. And we pretty much almost always say no. A lot of companies are obsessed with the notion of wall-to-wall. Slack, for example, really, really wants to be wall-to-wall. Right. And it's just not a thing for us. It, we we want to be in the hands of the people who do email for work and for whom work is email. And that's roughly a third of any given company. And that's also going to support the price point. I think if we were wall-to-wall, then we'd have to lower how much we were charging. Mm, interesting. Because then, if someone's using email twice a week because they're a developer and just doesn't get email, then they don't really value it. Their company's not going to value paying that for them. Yeah, so imagine, let, let's say for the sake of argument that the product was $10 a month and it was a thing that everyone had. Well, the people who don't have high email volume won't see the point. They'll be like, I don't know why I have this $10 a month thing. And you know that will become the narrative of the product. The people who do have high email volume will think it's amazing, but right. then you're not actually getting the value you should. Yeah, you're right. That's such a different perspective than most software companies take. Most people think about like expand, you know, get as many users on board as possible, sell as many seats. You know, that's a generally contrarian thing to do. But it sounds like you really believe that's a core value, like proposition or core belief that we're not going to expand to people who aren't going to use it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We only want customers who are actively using the product every single day. And what are the core reasons for that? I believe that is what you do to build a long-term sustainable business. You know, revenue is a is a side effect of success. What success actually is is a large number of people using your product. And so that's the thing we're optimizing for. Not just the set of people being large, but the fact that they're also using the product. Yeah, and loving the product. And, yes. I mean, you talk about this a little bit in your, you wrote this great piece for first round about like finding product market fit. And in that, you sort of describe this whole process of, of segmenting and finding your real users. And so that's really, you know, illustrates that it's what you're talking about here. You don't want to sell to people Inside of a company that aren't going to use and love your product, right? Yes. So I, I don't want to dwell too much on that product market fit thing. So I think you've talked about it a few times. And, and if anyone hasn't read it, it's an incredible piece about like a Rolls framework for how to basically quantify product market fit. Yes. Yeah, so there is this metric that you can use to determine whether or not you have product market fit, which is you ask your users how they would feel without the product, and then you let them say they would either be very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, or not disappointed. And it turns out, this has been benchmarked on hundreds of technology companies, if you get 
more than 40% of your users saying they would be very disappointed without your product, you almost certainly have product market fit and you'll be able to grow quite quickly assuming you can keep that percentage high. Uh, now, the really interesting thing about, uh, and, and I didn't come up with that metric, by the way, this, this, this was Sean Ellis who benchmarked this back in the day. What we came up with was this really powerful iterative method for optimizing that number. Once you have it, what do you then do next in order to keep on increasing it every week, every month, and every quarter? Uh, and that's what the content of that post is all about. And you also segmented sort of the responses, right, to figure out who your real target user was. Yeah, that's the thing with product market fit. There are actually two variables as the product and the market itself. So, what I advise that companies do is that they run the survey, uh, you get your initial number. Uh, in our case, I think it was 22%, which is obviously significantly lower than 40%. But then you look at who those users are. Who are the users who really love your product, who could not live without it? And you should consider resegmenting your approach around that kind of user. And that means everything from changing your positioning, changing your marketing, changing your copy, through to just not onboarding or not accepting or not selling to users of other kinds. Did you take Superhuman away from anyone that wasn't in the right segment? Oh no, of course not. Uh, but we we definitely stopped <laughs> going after certain segments. So you don't use email enough. No, no Superhuman for you. <laughs> that would be that would be something. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, this this methodology, right? And it is it's interesting because. When I think about like selling into enterprise software companies, one of the sort of differences is that like all users are not created the same, right? You have the buyer, you have the decider, you have like all these you have the end users, and so you have all these different people inside of a company that's using your software. And I'm just trying to map this on because it feels like. In a world where all users are equal, in a, in a prosumer world, this model works really well. And I'm trying to figure out how it would be different in a world where, you know, an engineering manager is making a decision for the engineering team, and the engineering team uses it, and then the CFO is paying for it. Does that make sense? It does. Here's what I would recommend in, in that scenario: is that you run two parallel sets of surveys. So. Philosophically, I, I still believe that we should be building software that's useful and loved and gets the job done, whatever the job happens to be. So I would run the survey for the engineers. Let's make sure that they would be very disappointed without the product and it's really fulfilling some kind of need. But they're probably not the only user type in that scenario. We also have engineering managers who may need to run reports, pull data, manage their team. I would also separately survey them. And if it turns out that the engineers couldn't care less about the product, but the engineering managers love it, well, then you might be able to grow a business, but sooner or later, a competitor will come along who scores on both. Mm. And they will almost certainly be able to outcompete you in that scenario. So I would run two sets of surveys. I'd make sure both the end users as well as the deciders really love the experience of your company even if they're not using the product. And yeah. in, in the case of the CFO, I, I think the way it would work in most companies is that they will just defer to the engineering manager. Sure. Right? The, the engineering manager has a budget, 
They can go and ask for more if they need to, but at the end of the day, they're deciding what software to buy. Yeah, I, I think to your point, it basically adds an extra layer of complexity because Superhuman really thus far was able to segment out and say, we're going to focus on the end user experience and making sure this is great. And then you were to say, okay, these folks over here don't use email enough. Let's not focus on them. Let's only sell to you know f- people who are doing email you know professionally. And in a world for most enterprise software companies, they're going to have an extra layer of users on top of that. And so they're going to, to your point, need to do a secondary survey and then try to build the things that will satisfy both of those users and make them both get over 40, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. That's super useful. That's great. Again, check out this post. How do they find it? What do they search for? Uh, If you go to Google and search for first round superhuman, then it should be the top result. Perfect. So let's talk a little bit about some of your fundraising history because, you know, I think, you know, I've known you for a long time and, you know, this is the first fundraise you've actually announced, I believe, right? You know, that's correct. This is Andreessen round 33 million just very recently. Who knows when this podcast will get published, but very recently raised this big round from Andreessen. But you'd raised money before that, right? Yes. So we had raised about 18 million before that. And can you kind of talk through that funding history? Who was involved? How you did it? Because I know you also have sort of this interesting perspective, sort of like always be fundraising, right? So can you talk a little about your fundraising strategy? Yeah, so my perspective is never be actively fundraising. Mm-hmm. Never be out there actively soliciting investors for money, but always be open to the idea that you could take money if a sufficiently good investor was interested. So that's one thing. The second thing I would say is always be raising one round ahead of traction. Mm. Right, raise your pre-seed when you would normally have nothing. Raise your seed when you would normally be raising a pre-seed, and A when you were normally doing a seed, and so on and so forth. First bit of funding for Superhuman came in late 2014. I was recovering from my my LinkedIn experience, taking some time off, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I was talking with with our mutual investor and good friend Ed from Boldstart. Uh, and uh, he ended up writing the first check into Superhuman. Okay, so he had known you for a while, was excited about what you did at Reportive, and then just wanted to be involved in whatever you're going to do next. Pretty much, and I was bouncing any number of ideas off him. And one day, towards the end of summer, I called him up and I was like, Ed, I have it. And he says, what are you going to do? Do you have a deck? And I was like, I do, but it has only one slide. And so I sent it over to him, and it was just a screenshot of Gmail with all the bits that I didn't like red inked out. I said, are you looking at it? And he was like on the phone, and he said, yes. He's in New York, and I'm in San Francisco. And I said, okay, cool. So I want to build Gmail, but it's going to be really, really fast. It'll be very pretty, and everyone's going to pay for it, and everyone's going to love it. And he was like, amazing, I'm in. <laughs> Can I wire you some money, please? And I said, I don't even have a, a company bank account yet. Two days later, he, he wired me the money. And so that's how we raised the first 750K. And even that was done in tranches. So he wanted to invest a million at that time. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't want a million dollars. I'll take $250,000 to get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. And then a few months later, I let him put another 250 k in, and a few months later, another 250 after that. And so by the end of that year, we had about 750 k raised. At that point, I went back to all of the reportive investors who made anywhere from 3 to 5x their money uh, on the sale of that company, and so obviously they were very excited to invest again, especially given it was thematically the same. Sure. And that brought us to about two and a half million dollars raised. Then first round 
got wind of what we were doing and invited me to come in and, and show them what I was doing. And again, I didn't have a deck, um, although by this point, we had a prototype. Okay. Uh, and so I walked in and I said, hey, we're building the fastest email experience of all time. And they were like, we don't believe you, can you please show us? And so I showed them the demo and they're like, oh, that is really, really fast. And, th and then they said, well, can you please come in and pitch the partnership? And I don't do partnership pitches, I, I really dislike them. So I, I didn't do them for, for this round of financing, I didn't do them back, back then for the seed round either. So I said, I, I really don't want to, but I, I will happily meet each of your general partners individually. You know, similar idea to onboarding. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I should You'll onboard them into Raul. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to my crazy world. And and so I, I did the product demo for, for each general partner at first round and answered each of their questions individually. And they were more or less the same. You could have argued it would be more efficient to do it in a partnership meeting setting. But I, I'm not very good in a group conversation. I'm much better one to one. Hmm. And so they ended up investing another. 1.6 million, which took us to about 4.1 million, and that's what we called our seed round. Was was that first 4.1 million dollars? It was raised at a variety of valuations with with first round sort of tailing it out. And then I had this board meeting with Bill, Bill Trenchard from First Round, and at the time we were only building desktop software. And I remember saying to him that you know for anyone to seriously use our software, we were going to need a world class mobile experience. And he asked me, how long would that take to build? And I said, uh, if anything, it's going to be harder than the desktop app. I think it will take at least 24 months to make it amazing from the point when we start. He said, can money compress that? I said, no. No, this is a, this is a quality game. He's like, well, then we need to get started ASAP. And I said, yes, but we don't have the money to do that. 4.1 million is just about enough to pull it off on desktop. We'd need that and more to also pull it off on another platform. Uh, and he said, well, then we should go out and raise money. So then we did an interesting strategy that turned out to be super effective for raising the Series A, uh, which is I, I didn't go out and you know hit the market for a Series A. Mm -hmm. I like to do this thing of interstitial rounds. So I did this between the seed and the A and between the A and the B. So the, the post-money valuation on the seed round was um, $16 million. And I knew I wanted to raise a very healthy A. So I went back to, to Ed in New York. And I said, hey, here's the conversation I had with Bill. We're going to raise some money. We're going to build mobile. Now, how much money do we think we're going to raise for the Series A? I mean, we had a bit of back and forth. And I was like, I think I'm going to aim for 10 million. 10 million sounds like a really, really healthy amount of money. And we can both agree that we want a great valuation. Let's say 10 on 40 post money 50. And I was like, yes, this, this sounds amazing. Let's, let's go and do that. And so I said, I'm going to let you invest at half that valuation. I'm going to let you invest at 25 million. Not too much money, like half a million dollars, let's say. And that way, we get the ball rolling now. I can hire a mobile engineer now. And you get this amazing discount into the Series A. And of course, he was all over. He was like, yes, let's do this. Literally sign the documents right there. And then other investors got wind of, of what was going on. They were like, oh, we, we really want to get on this $25 million round as well, especially if he's going to raise 10 with a post money of 50. But the thing is, you can't take on that much money at 25, right? You can only take on maybe a million dollars. Right. And when that caps out, you're like, all right, this is done. If you want to invest, you now have to invest 10 million. And it has to be at a pre-money of 40 with a post money of 50. And that was how our Series A got preempted. 
so I, I went to market raising a small amount of money at 25, and we got so much inbound interest that it became 10 million on a post money of 50. Mm. You didn't really have a lot of users at this point. You had like some early users for people paying you at this point yet or not? We didn't have any paying customers at that point. We had maybe 10 users. Yeah, and they, they were your early investors, other people yeah. that were just like betaing it out basically, exactly. trying it. But you had a great product that people saw the potential in. Your story is so perfectly aligned to building this because I think one of the things I remember is you always talked about building all the things into the email client that need to be there by default, right? So everything you did at Reportive, like snoozing and remind me and all these other things that like people were using plugins to solve. Like, did you just be one email that does that for you? Right? Yes, yeah. Especially for first-time founders, one of the big things you have to convince early investors is that there isn't execution risk. Like, you will be able to hire a team, you'll be able to write high-quality code, you'll be able to market it, and so on. Fortunately, as a second-time founder, I don't have to spend time, and neither do you, because also a successful second-time founder, we don't have to spend time convincing people that we know how to execute. So we can have a higher-level conversation. Like, is the idea any good or not? And you know, how much money is it going to make down the line? How big could this thing actually be? And so if you're fortunate enough to have that level of conversation, then you can easily run a, a fundraising strategy like we did. Uh, and we did exactly the same thing in between the A and the B. So the, uh, the the Wall Street Journal helpfully leaked all of our numbers uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, so I'm not revealing anything. The post money on the Series B that we just did was 260 million, and I ran an 80 million dollar round a year before. So I, once again, one parlayed into the other. In the 80 million dollar round, from what I remember, I, th- I think you you brought a lot of angels into that round, right? Yes. And I think this is actually a really interesting part of it because. I mean, you have some incredible angels. I don't know if you want to name a few of them. And they're all users as well, right? They use the product. They love the product. Talk a bit about the benefits and why you've got angels involved in, in, a, in a round like that. Sure. Yeah, so you know, some of the folks we have involved, uh, we have Des and Owen from Intercom, we have John from Stripe, Nat from GitHub, and so on. So there's kind of a quid pro quo here, which is I really believe that the folks who are early to a platform ought to be able to benefit financially if that thing happens to do well. And then, obviously, of course, I want the company to do well. And so this was a way of aligning incentives near perfectly. If you let leadership in the company, in a customer's company, rather, invest in yours, not only will they benefit if the company does well, but they can also evangelize both internally and externally for the product that you're building. Yeah, and I think for your audience, right, which are sort of people who are doing email professionally, CEOs and founders and other folks like that, I mean, I'm sure you have lots of other non-executive titles in there, but the people you have involved are the super, super power users at the top of that game, right? And so they're able to to use themselves as an example and say, I use this and this makes me more productive. And so that trickles down where a lot of people are at, like they're aspirational people that people want to, you know, want to to be like. I think that's one of the things that Superhuman has is it has a very aspirational brand. Yes. Right? And bringing in aspirational investors who become part of your surface area and part of your evangelism, I think is a really smart move and a great way to do that. Oh, thank you. The and it was it was by design. The the idea is if folks check out the uh 
the first round article I wrote, I used this concept of the highest expectation customer. And the highest expectation customer is defined as the most discerning person in your demographic. And critical about them is that others want to be like them because they consider them to be clever, judicious, or insightful. And if I were to generalize this strategy, and if I were an enterprise founder, I'd ask myself the question, who is my highest expectation customer? You know, maybe in, in the example we were using earlier, you literally want to come up with names. It's the top 300 engineering managers in the Valley. Now, let's set aside a pool of my next financing round. If it's 500 engineering managers, let's set aside $500,000 and each let them own a piece of the company. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's so many angles on this because number one, I think, you know, building a piece of software from the most discerning user, right, requires a lot of effort and money and attention. And so, you know, I think we've sort of have for so long talked about like MVP, get something out, get something out, right? Get people to use it, give feedback. And this is a different approach. You're saying look, like you have to build there's so much noise in the market. You have to build something so good that they can rise above the noise. And to do that, you need money and you need time. But it's a different approach, right? I, I think one of the valuable things of you telling the story of your fundraise is to sort of show that it does require money and time. It's not like, you know, this was just a thing that somebody built over a weekend. This was a very intentionally built piece of software that you have had a team of great engineers focused on for a long time in order to get it to this point. Yes. And yeah, so I'm five years in at this point. Yeah. And we've been writing code for four years. And it's funny you mentioned intentionally built. Our second company value is be intentional. Right. Uh, so I'm glad that comes through. Yeah, I mean, almost everything that you do is, is, is very intentional, right? Even your fundraise, you can tell that you've thought this through. I mean, being a second time founder, you've made mistakes. Previously, like we all have, and so you should still make a few mistakes yeah. now. But you know, you sort of can know some of those things that are going to come down the road. But I think it's a great example of, you know, kind of a counter to the narrative that's become so popular, and you know, for other people to be able to emulate this in order to to produce, you know, prosumer software in the enterprise. I think it's probably an approach they'll have to take as well, right? So some of the things you're doing to model this out. And sharing right now, I think, are really important. Are there other like tools that you're like, someone needs to build the superhuman for X in this category? Two that I see very frequently uh, as requests are superhuman for calendar. I think that with the demise of Sunrise, we don't have a good third-party calendar solution right now. And I see very common requests for a superhuman for personal CRM. You know, help me be better with people. Yeah, I mean, both of those are fairly related to what you're doing. So, like, they're kind of, t you know, uh, I think you can see why, why people would request it, right? Because mm -hmm. they're so close. But, I mean, there's probably like a dev environment that people would love to have as a, you know, prosumer experience. Or, you know, every profession probably has something where they're, they're really would love a prosumer type experience. I completely agree. And I'm beginning to see more and more of these pop up, many of which actually reference superhuman as an explicit source of inspiration. So uh, Jory, who was previously at Coinbase, is now working on an app called Linear. Mm -hmm. And Linear is a issue tracking for developers, but it's deliberately built with the superhuman product principles. It's blazingly fast. Everything happens in 100 milliseconds or less. It's keyboard shortcut driven. It's a 
full-screen desktop experience that I believe just works offline and so on and so forth. And that's our product playbook. That's our philosophy. And I, I think if you build those things, you build them to high quality, and it's not easy. It takes many years to do that. Then you can credibly play at the prosumer for enterprise. Yeah, but there's a high bar because you're trying to satisfy for the most distinguishing user, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very high bar. All right, Raul, thank you so much for being here. This was awesome. So many weird angles we took and different different ways we went, but uh, I really appreciate your time and, and your insights on this. So, well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this was a very different enterprise ready podcast where we got to explore sort of like counterpoints to how you can go to market in enterprise without a thousand admin features and you know role based access control that's super granular so hopefully you know this inspires some folks to take a different perspective and and try something new right the, the one thing that's true is you can't always follow the same formula right so folks you've you've reinvented a formula here and so hopefully folks can take some inspiration from that. I hope so. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.